Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for making more room for tomorrow by being here tonight. You know, believers all over the globe, simple believers from all kinds of nations, countries, trades, are worshiping Jesus Christ for the resurrection and the life that we have in Him. Thank you for joining us here. If you are newer, a guest here, if we can serve you in any way, Jenny's already talked about if we can pray with you, but if we can serve you in any way whatsoever, we'd love to. You can use that Connect card or talk to one of the prayer partners at the end of the service. We have a simple, clear vision here. Love Jesus, journey together, bring hope to the world. We'd love for you to be part of this. We're going to pray together the Lord's Prayer. Love for you to pray with us, full voiced. It's going to be on your screens. Please pray with me now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, with all of our hearts, we bless you this evening. Lord, thank you that, that you sent a Savior to bear our sin and to give us life. Lord, thank you for a risen Savior. We bless you. We worship you. Lord, I pray that every single person here to know tonight would know your love for them, your heart for them, the resurrection life that is available in Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray together for our fellow Christ-honoring churches throughout our city as we pray for Houston to become a great city of God. Lord, we, we, we think of Hope Point, Faith Bible, Church Project, Crossroads, so many other Christ-honoring churches. Bless them, each one, Lord, we pray. And Lord God, we've got about 50 ministry partners and missionaries around the world through Grant Houston. And Lord, we pray for each one of them that you'd bless them, put your hand upon them, and use them as they're spreading the gospel around the world. Bless them. Now, Papa, you know everything on our hearts, every single one of us, every fear, every dream, every joy. Lord, would you speak to us? Draw us and meet with us this Easter weekend. Lord, that's our prayer, and we trust that you hear us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I love the story about the middle school principal in Oregon who had a problem, and she needed wisdom to work on it. This was the problem, is that there were a group of the girls in the school who were putting their lipstick on in the bathroom. And then after putting their lipstick on, they would give a little kiss to the mirror and leave their kiss prints there. And the problem was it was so hard to get it off and to get it clean. And she kept appealing to the girls, would you stop kissing the mirror? And they would never stop kissing the mirror. And so this woman was wise, and this is what she did. She called all the girls together. They crowded into the bathroom with the custodian, and she began to appeal to them again. It's so hard to get these kiss prints off the mirror. And she turned to the custodian and asked him to demonstrate. He took out his long brush, and he went over to the toilet bowl and stuck it in. And he began to scrub hard on that mirror. Problem stopped. That woman had wisdom. This week I have felt the need for wisdom to, to convey to you this Easter weekend, 
the love of a God who would send his son to be our savior, die on a cross on Friday night, raised from the dead, and the wonder of a God like this. And we're going to be pressing into it. You know, there are three great events in human history that tower far above all others. And those would be the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, we celebrate at Christmas, when God becomes man, takes on humanity. And then the death of Jesus when on that Friday morning he is nailed to a cross. The whole purpose of his coming is to be nailed to that cross so that he could bear the sin of the world, your sins and my sins, and pay for them. And then on the third day, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead in triumph and glory. He defeats death, Satan, and, and sin for all time. Those are the three great looming events in human history. And because of those three events, you and I can have life and meaning and forgiveness. Now, this weekend for Easter, we're not going to actually focus so much on the Easter weekend Friday and Sunday, but go to the night before on Thursday because something fascinating happens on Thursday night that's remarkable that really gives us wisdom about what, what the cross and the resurrection were all about. This is what happened on Thursday night. Jesus, knowing that the next morning he is going to be crucified, he gathers his disciples with him to an upper room to celebrate the annual Passover celebration of the Jews, to mark the rescue of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And during that night, as he is celebrating the Passover feast with them, he transforms it from a Passover celebration to a communion Lord's Supper celebration to celebrate God's rescue of his people, us, out of slavery to sin. And that's a transformation. Now, the night went like this. When Jesus got there, he takes off a towel his robe that he had, takes a bowl of water, and he begins to wash the stinky, smelly feet of the disciples. It's kind of unheard of. And then after that, he inaugurates communion in that Passover meal, giving us instruction, remember me, remember my death and resurrection, because that is how you get rescued from slavery to sin. And then he began to teach them. And some of the best teachings of Jesus were found in those chapters found in John's Gospel. For example, he said things like this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or a bit later he says in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Or a bit later he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he says many other incredible things during that time. Now at the end of that evening, knowing what's coming ahead the next morning. He gathers his disciples. He leaves the upper room, leaves the old city of Jerusalem, goes down the Kidron Valley, just east of the city of Jerusalem, begins to go up on the far side, the Mount of Olives, and he takes his disciples to a garden grove that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, that there is still an olive grove there today. Trees, olive trees, hundreds of years old. Uh, one tree scientist says maybe 2,000 years old, maybe Jesus 
uh, was alive at the time of that tree, but there's still a garden grove there today. And in fact, when I lead tours to Israel, invariably one of the highlights of the trip is when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane because of what, of what events occurred there that Thursday night that we're going to look at. It's an amazing time. So Jesus gathers his disciples, takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's when we come to our passage on the Thursday night. If you would stand, I'd like to read that passage. If you'd stand in honor of God's holy word. I'm going to read just four verses when they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very troubled, very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this is God's holy word. Please be seated. When Jesus arrives at the garden, he, he has most of the disciples, about eight of them, stay in this one place. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane today is about the size of this room. And so he could leave some of his disciples over here and go farther. But when he goes farther, he takes the three closest disciples to him, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, probably the closest people to Jesus on the planet, he takes them with him, and, they, and he goes probably 100 yards or so away. And then he pauses there and asks those guys, would you pray with me? And he goes a little bit farther. And you get the impression that here on this faithful night, the night before he's crucified, that Jesus felt such a need to get along with the Father and pour out his heart to the Father that he walked so closely with, but yet he doesn't want his disciples to be very far away, as if he needed them. In fact, he has about seven or eight of them in the garden with him, and then he takes three more just right close to him, and he goes a little bit farther. Isn't it amazing that Jesus needed people? I mean, he's fully God, but he is also fully human. And in our humanness, we all need people. It is our wiring. It is hardwired into you and me to need people. And partly for those reasons, we have small groups, community groups, throughout our church because we all need people and we want to build community and relationship. Jesus, on this night, he needed his friends to be right there with him. Now, watch what happens next. In verse 37, we read, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That's when it began to hit him. Maybe uh, earlier in the evening, he was so busy teaching and leading through the Passover festival and things like that, it didn't hit him fully. But now as he gets in the garden and he goes to prayer, maybe it hits him. 
all that's going to happen the next morning, and it's overwhelming to him. Or maybe even the father sort of removes the veil from him to, to let him experience the full weight of what's going to be happening the next morning. But the text says that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be burdened. He began to be overwhelmed. He began to be anguished. He began to agonize about what was coming ahead. Now, the word sorrowful has a nuance of surprise in it. That word is used for when, when the uh, pain comes in surprise. And so maybe Jesus was stunned of the weight of the burden that hit him at this time in the Garden of Eden. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Mel Gibson's movie that came out, what, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, it doesn't really deal with the details of this text, but it does show the agony of Gethsemane and the pain Jesus was in. And this is what the text bears out. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And in fact, the word trouble was used of, of being overwhelmed with horror. With horror. Jesus felt this immense burden and pain fall upon him at this time. And when he did, Mark says that Mark's gospel of the same account says he, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, underscoring how big the pain was. Luke's gospel describes it this way. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Agony, earnest, desperate prayer. Like great drops of blood, which could be a metaphor that it was like great drops of blood, or at times we have seen in human history, even capillaries burst and blood drops come out. Maybe that's what happened. But are we all clear of the immense pain? How distraught Jesus is big time here as he thinks about what is coming ahead. Now, he's got the three inner circle, three closest disciples with him here, and he has a choice. At this point, feeling this uh, surprising burden fall upon him, he could either walk away and get along with his father and, and pour his heart out. Or he could also first tell Peter, James, and John how much he is hurting and how overwhelmed and distressed he is. And wonder of wonders, that's what he does. And, and it is a mark of his authenticity, of his vulnerability, of his humility that he would say what he says before falling on his face to go pray more. And what he says blows me away. This is what he says to them. Before going over to pray, he looks at his side. I can imagine him just looking at their eyes with a distraught face. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now that is something like, Jesus saying, I am hurting so badly, I feel like dying. Stay here and pray with me. I need you. Now, isn't that something? I don't know if it was eight or ten years ago. I had been a believer for 30 years or so when the full force of this statement hit me. And I thought to myself, that is the most vulnerable thing I have ever heard in my life. 
right there. I mean, it would be one thing for me to say something like that. Hey, I am hurting so badly, I wish I was dead. I mean, that'd be one thing, but, you know, I'm a, uh, a regular fallen, broken man. No big deal. But when God himself steps out of eternity and becomes a man, a perfect man, who is also God, the same God who created the galaxies and is the perfect holy God, when he gets to a point of hurting and he says, I am hurting so badly I could die, I mean, that is the most vulnerable thing I have ever read. I am blown away by it, utterly blown away. And I can remember being struck by this and thinking, the bar of authenticity has been raised so high that we as a church can no longer pretend and pose with one another if we're going to claim to be followers of that man who was that vulnerable. We can no longer pretend we don't have problems. We can no longer pretend that we've got our act together. We can no longer pretend that we're more spiritual than we really are if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he talked that way. And you know, here's the truth, church, that uh, none of us have our act together. You're a mess, each one of you, and so am I. And life is hard, and we all struggle. And it's just not quite enough just to give a, a flippant always saying when you're asked how you're doing, oh, I'm fine or I'm great, because we're not always fine or great. And the level of vulnerability that Jesus puts up is so high. Wood's Edge, from that point on, more and more, we want to be a place not for perfect people, but for real people, because there are no perfect people. We want to be a place for flawed people like you and me who need God's grace and mercy. By the way, when you think about Jesus and being this distressed of soul, feeling overwhelmed with pain in his heart, I ask, have you ever felt that way? Do you know what he's feeling like? I, I see a few nods. I do. I do. It's the darkest time of my life. It was May 2011. I'd been struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder, a mental disease since I was 21 years old, a senior in college. And at times it became so bad that I just didn't know if I'd make it. <clears throat> A few years back in May of 2011, <clears throat> some of you were here then, and um, it, 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 it had gotten so bad that I couldn't kind of keep it buried underneath anymore and couldn't kind of manage it, and it just came out, and, and I wasn't sure I was going to make it. I, I wondered, was my brain just going to kind of spin off its reels? What, would I irrationally commit suicide? Would, I in, uh, would they put me in some kind of institution? I wasn't sure that I was going to make it. Those of you who have experienced mental pain know that every moment can be an agony, an eternity. And I was hurting big time. I know what it's like. Uh, I was on vacation when that happened. Maybe I kind of went off guard and it all hit me. I got back the next Sunday to speak here at the church and I had a quick decision to make. <clears throat> a basic, uh, struggling here with the voice. I had a basic decision to make. Uh, should I tell people what I was going through, or should I just kind of ignore it? Well, for me, that was an easy decision. I, I felt that authenticity 
demanded it. Thank you, darling. <coughs> Hold on a second. <coughs> I thought that authenticity demanded that I tell what was going on. I, I just didn't feel like in good conscience it would be real to stand up here, preach a sermon, and pretend that I was okay because I wasn't. And secondly, I told the congregation because, many of you were here, because I desperately wanted the prayers of thousands of people because I was so desperate. And you prayed, and I survived, and God began a healing work in me that has made more difference in my life than I could describe. Um, when Jesus Christ came to this planet, uh, he was so authentic and vulnerable. And the reason I was vulnerable there was because I had seen it in Jesus. And I thought, how could we possibly not get real with a Savior like that? This past week, Gail was watching a YouTube TED Talk from Brene Brown. You know that name? She's a U of H prof. Uh, her talk on vulnerability, I think, has 34 million hits. Uh, she's done a lot of research on vulnerability. And in her talk, I was in the kitchen some, and I overheard these lines. She said a lot of times when we're vulnerable, we think we're being weak. We're not. We're being strong. We're at our strongest. In fact, when you are vulnerable, it is the most courageous thing that you ever do. And we got it from Jesus, who was the most courageous and most vulnerable man that ever lived. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, I feel like dying. Please pray for me. It's just mind-boggling for me. So he has the decision. Is he going to just go off by himself or is he going to tell his disciples? He tells the disciples, and this is the words that he puts it in. This is how he chooses it in verse 38. It's even more striking when he says in verse 38, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Very sorrowful. Feel like dying. I may not make it. Would you please stay here and pray with me? And the text says that he goes off and falls on his face. He doesn't just kind of sweetly kind of kneel down and do his hands like this. He fell on his face in his agony and his pain and calls out to God. It's an amazing thing. You know, the big question is why? That's where we need wisdom that we started with. Why is Jesus overwhelmed with pain? On Thursday night in this garden, the next morning he's going to be crucified. Well, the first thought is, well, it's because he's going to be crucified the next morning, and that was the most cruel form, most agonizing form of execution that had been invented by man. So that's it. But was the physical pain the reason for this being overwhelmed? I don't think so. There is not one word in the four Gospels pointing to the physical pain of the crucifixion. That's just not the point. And many others throughout history face horrible, brutal death with much more calm and resolve or with equanimity. For example, not too long after that, Stephen is going to be the first martyr in Acts 8. He's going to be stoned to death, another brutal form of, of, of death. Big stones thrown down on his head. He is smiling. He is at peace. He is 
forgiving those around him. He is radiating with love. Completely different than Jesus. Or in the first century, just after it ended, John's disciple Polycarp, one of the early church leaders, is burned at the stake. And as they're burning him at the stake, they give him an opportunity here to recant. No way. He's glad to die for his Savior. Or another striking example, in the 1500s in England, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley are going to be burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England. And as they're tied together at the stake and they begin to light the embers, Ridley, Latimer, says to Ridley, he says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be seen again. These are just a few examples of countless examples where people, people of God, faced a brutal death with much more joy and peace than Jesus did. The reason Jesus was so overwhelmed with pain and sorrow was not the physical agony of the cross, but it was the spiritual pain of the cross. Because the next morning, Jesus knew that after he was crucified and nailed to that cross, that God would take all of your sins and my sins and place them on Jesus. And in a very real sense, a spiritual sense, Jesus would take the weight of our sin. And it was overwhelming. And when he did take the weight of that sin, because he had sin, he was completely separated from his father. And that's why he cries out on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he feels so separated from his Father. Now, would you imagine with me and, and understand with me, this is where we need God's wisdom, why that was so painful. Think of it this way. Think about a time when you have done something really bad. Uh, maybe it doesn't have to be a specific time, but we all know what it's like to sin in some big way, and we feel terrible about it. I hope you did. Be a problem if you didn't feel terrible. But I hope you felt the convicting work of the Spirit, and you felt terrible about it for one sin. Can you imagine for all of even my sins to be placed on Jesus Christ at one time and Him to bear that? Now, it's something that I would feel so badly when I'm just a sinful, broken man. But for the perfect, sinless Son of God, too holy to look upon sin, if all of our sin is placed on Him, I mean, think about all of the selfishness, blasphemy, cruelties, rapes, murders, all put on Jesus, and He bears them for us. That was the pain of Gethsemane, and that was the pain of the cross. And he did it for you and me in his great love to bear your sin. And at that time, he was separated from the Father. Now think about that. Think of it this way. All right, Gail and I have been married 38 years. We love each other. Got through some tough years, but, you know, we're, we love each other. Um, when I travel uh, internationally, apart from Gail, about the time I get to the airplane and get on the airport, it's been a couple of hours, I'm already beginning to miss her. I already feel off kilter. But after two or three days, I'm ready to get home. In fact, I've come to realize home is wherever Gail happens to be at the moment. And I miss her. And I have only been married to her for 38 years. 
and we're pretty flawed people. Okay, here is Jesus Christ who has lived in perfect fellowship, harmony, unity, community with his Father and with the Spirit and the triune Godhead forever and ever and ever. And when he bears your sin and mine, it is severed like a knife. And he calls out to God. For the first time ever doesn't say Father, but he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is bearing your sin and mine. Now, church, we see a lot of things at Gethsemane, this remarkable incident. We see the authenticity of Jesus. We see the desperateness of Jesus. We see the humility of Jesus. But more than anything, we see the love of Jesus for sinners like you and me. It was Jonathan Edwards in the 1800s, 1700s, who said there are two things about Jesus here that show the greatness of his love for us. One is how much pain he would go through. And two how much pain he would go through for people so sinful as us. Those two things show the wonder of his love for you. Now, have you realized that he loves you this way? Or have you believed the lie of Satan? He doesn't really love you. He's a hard taskmaster. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be such a lie of Satan. Jesus in agony. He goes a bit farther, and this is what he prays in verse 39. It says, and going a little bit farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now that prayer blows me away also. Okay, just think about it. From all eternity, eternity past, the plan of salvation for you and me was for the father to send the son, God the son, to the planet and after about 30 years, he would be crucified to a Roman cross, and there he would bear our sin to save us from our sin. All of that happens. He gets to the night before he's going to be crucified, and what in the world does Jesus pray except, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Lord, is there another way? Lord, can we go some other plan? Is there some other way to save the human race? I'm just astounded by this. It shows the honesty of Jesus. It shows the full humanity of Jesus. That cup he was referring to is the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament. A cup of God's just punishment for our sin. And Jesus said, Lord, is there some other way? But then he follows it with a prayer of sublime surrender and trust. When he says, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. Lord, I don't want this anymore. But Lord, if that's what you want, may it be. May it be. And how did God the Father answer that prayer? In mercy to you. He said no. He said no. Or we'd be stuck. We'd be stuck. Church, we cannot see what Jesus did at Gethsemane and not be overwhelmed with the love of a God like that for us. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. On Easter morning, we see He's a living Savior, and He is. But on Thursday night and on Friday, we see He is a loving Savior. Crazy love for the likes of us. And church, here's my thought. I just don't think that kind of love could be ignored. 
I don't think that is a suitable option, that we can live our lives for ourselves as we please, living for our stuff and our dreams when we've got a Savior like that who died on a cross like that for me. I think it demands your whole life. And if I had a thousand lives, I would live them for Jesus Christ. And I will certainly live the only life I've got. And I would urge you to do the same. In fact, this kind of love is the love that you've been looking for all your life. It is not found in any love of a parent, any love of a child, any love of a spouse, or any friendship love, or any romantic love. There is no love like it in the universe. All those loves will let you down, but this love will fill your heart. You have been looking for it all your life. Take it and love him back. If you've never trusted the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, do so now. It's not religion, not churchianity, it's Jesus. Do so now. Some of you perhaps have done that in the past, but your heart has grown cold. It is time for you to come home. I said before that home is wherever Gail is, but in a much deeper sense, it is wherever Jesus is. Because I was made for that. It is time to come home. Would you please stand? Friend, if the Spirit of God is tugging your heart, don't say no to a God like this. Give Him your whole life. Surrender. If you've never trusted Him as Savior, just breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. If you've done that, but your heart has grown cold, you've grown angry, you've grown distant, you've grown busy, come home. Come home. Give your whole life to him. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Thank you for Easter. Lord, thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you for the love of Jesus seen at Gethsemane and on Friday. We bless you and adore you with all our hearts. Amen. That same night, Thursday night, that we're talking about, Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper or communion. He took the Jewish Passover feast and he transforms it. And he said about the bread, said, this is going to be my body. It's going to represent my crucified body. So when we take the little bits of cracker, we are remembering the crucified body of Jesus, crucified for us. And then he took the cup, it was a Passover cup, but he said, I'm going to give it a new meaning. This is going to be the cup representing my blood. My blood shed for you. And so when you take this little bit of juice, remember the blood of Jesus washed away all of your sins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that kind of love, you just receive anew, receive afresh. Thank you, Lord, for that love. Communion is open to anybody who has received that kind of love. Come and worship the Lord.